1: We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today, we'll be chatting with Oscar-nominated writer Kemp Powers about his movie Soul, One Night in Miami, and The Art of Adaptation. But first, adventures in screenwriting. Lorian, how was your week? Uh, my week was great. Uh, two interesting things happened this week. One is that I... I uh, wasn't able to recompartmentalize it, compartmentalize everything and that my time streams got off. So I, f- I had jury duty this week, but I didn't put it together that it actually impacted my week in some real way. Like I'd so separated jury duty. So Wednesday I texted Jeff and Meg I'm like, Hey, you guys, I might have jury duty on Friday <laughs> because it didn't makes sense that t- jury duty and my actual week were like the same timeline for some reason. <laughs> I think what's happening is that I need to get out of the house. Big picture. I think you need to get out of the house. I too. need to get the hell out of my house. I need something different to happen. I'm, uh, yeah. And then the other thing is that I uh, am I'm feeling very much like back at the beginning on a project I've been working on for a very long time, which is very disheartening. Right to be at a point where I feel like I'm a writer I know what I'm doing, and then hey, wait, what is story? What <laughs> is plot? What is conflict? How have I gone this it's far? It's so without par for the it? course. It's so par for the course. Oh and my so God. and so, I thought, okay, I'm gonna just put that project aside right now, and I'll start something new. You know, just to distract myself, just in, in the hope that as I'm working on something new, it might answer some questions I have. And the other thing, right? Like, right. oh, I have some realization. So I start working on it. And in about three hours, I realized this is garbage. And again, I got right back to the, of course, it's not really, I just found a lot of things that didn't work around that idea. And I'm going to keep going, right? Okay, I, good. I tend to like, oh, doesn't work, move on, come up with something new. But I'm I'm committed to good. working this through um, but, uh, yeah, again, it's that like, I'm really focused on outlining the plot of this first, there so you I go. don't come against this problem again. And then I just sit there and I stare at my useless hands and I think, oh, <laughs> and then I beat myself up because every time I come on the show and I talk about my week, it's just how everything is falling apart and how I'm struggling all the time. And I am excited when I get to share some success someday soon about like, I cracked it, or this worked, or this happened. But I think that's part of my psychological makeup is that I don't even recognize those moments. I was gonna I, say, uh, you focus... have
0: had them, you've had them. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you've just told me on text, they've come and gone. Because it right. is such a process of, uh, and it's like my week is like, it writing is just a process of choices and then disintegration and building it back up, and then it breaks apart and then you build it up and then it breaks apart and you build it up and you're excavating and you're throwing out half of it. I mean, that is, and I know that you know that from Pixar too, like that is the process. And it's funny, you can know that intellectually, but then emotionally and spiritually, it just sometimes, you know, the, the critic uses it as as, as, as dinner. Right? Like, great. Yes. Like, this is, yes. I've got something to beat Laurian up about, but I will be here to tell you and I hope you all, every one of our listeners get friends who you ask to be the person to remind them of the breakthroughs, to remind them of the good stuff, to remind all that good writing, all that good writing, Laurian, yes. all that good writing.
1: The, the other thing before we jump back to you is that I, I think I've talked about this before. I have this idea that I'm good at some things and really shitty at other things. And I have to turn that around somehow. I have to start telling myself just like things usually work out for me. I'm great at dialogue. I have to add these other things that I'm great at instead of continuing to tell myself this negative narrative, because it's so dangerous to be yeah. like, I struggle with this. I struggle with this because then when I am in it and I struggling with it, I take my hands off the keyboard and I stare at them. and I say, well, I'm shit at that. Why even this is too hard for me. Right. Instead of not even I can figure it out, but I'm brilliant at this thing. I'm brilliant at it. Right. And
0: just telling myself that lie until it becomes a reality. <laughs> so it's like Lionel Richie said, every morning he wakes up, he looks in the mirror and he goes, Oh my gosh, Lionel Richie. Yeah. I, I you know, every morning you wake up and you go, Oh my gosh, Laurie McKenna. This is fantastic. Uh, yes. Oh my gosh. Laurie McKenna is so good at Yes. So that's what I have to start
1: doing. It seems ridiculous and childish, but it's like, and I'm so not a believer in affirmations, but like, apparently I am because I've come (laughs) up with a whole list of them to say. So that was my Good. good thing about this week is that I have to change the narrative. I have to change my narrative, my story so that I can move forward. How was your week, Meg?
0: Uh, I'm in the choices stage, you know, what's going to stay and what's going to go, which is, you know, such a big part of writing. What's essential? What is what is it I thought was essential, but actually it isn't essential? Um, You know, I'm having to feel okay to move away from, you know, this is in writing your original pitch or the underlying material or that draft or whatever. You have to be like, okay, I thought, you know, that seemed to work, but even the stuff that has to work maybe has to go. Uh, you know, the funny bit or the, or whatever, because the larger uh, structure of that act or what you need to get into that act or whatever, it has to, I have to open my mind to it. And it's hard. It's, I can feel myself gripping it. Um, But, you know, the other thing I wanted to say about that in terms of craft is, you know, often if you have a problem, the first thing your brain wants to do is add something new. Well, we'll just add this in act one and then that'll work. I want to challenge you as writers to first look at what's there. because sometimes you can get so much stuff going on that now we just have mud or a cacophony of noise and you and because there's so much in there. Now sometimes you do have to add stuff in for sure. but I'm saying first look at what's there and is it just that something's out of balance? or you've made something a minor key and it's actually a major key. And it's the thing that has to be structuring everything because generally I think in your dream especially in your barf draft, it's in there. You just don't know it's in there. You're not seeing it, right? Like you think the story is about the two brothers but in fact, it's about the father and you made the father a side character but he's in there, right? So first go and look at what's in there. I think as a step, um, just as you know, an exercise for you and, um, you know, I'm right now at the stage of looking at, you know, the efficiency of act one, right? It has to do so much lifting. It has to do so much work. Um, you know, a producer once said to me, you know, it's about real estate. What am, What are you giving real estate to in the whole script, but also in this act? Like, And is that the place to give real estate? Is that the real yeah. estate you want to give? Right? Because you only have so much. And uh, it's really trying to get everything that everybody wants into that act, but in such an efficient way. So it's not like I can put this one thing in. No, no, no. That thing has to do three things. It has to show the characters want, show their emotional connection to something and and be the stakes. That one thing. Right. So, so this to me is what like is the harder stuff. Tell no, us I what that know. thing is. Yeah, I What's don't know. Thing? I don't know, goddammit! <laughs> we all I'm, want to know. <laughs> I literally have like a lot of versions and none of them are quite working, but each bad version brings me hopefully to another good version. And then you might spitball with your director and they're bringing in another piece and you just keep going and going. You know, the other thing I'm doing as I'm looking at act one is going to the end because the end is actually working in its lumpy self you know, not that there's not work to do there, but there's something happening at the end that is working. So that means act one has to get me that end, if that makes sense. So I'm looking, I'm kind of working backwards now to say, well, if I want that end, what are the pulls of this and how do I make that work? So, and the last thing I'll say, because we have a wonderful guest and we need to get to him is um, really understanding that when you have an act one, that's full of so much stuff, that the thing that gives all that stuff or what like I sometimes call incident, what gives it context and gives it clarity is your main character's want. Hmm. Meaning if you've made it super clear what this main character wants and you've attached me to it, then everything else coming at them in act one and for the rest of the script is in block, is in challenge to that. So suddenly it has context and it's not just an incident that they're experiencing. It actually now has a reason to be in the story because it's blocking that want. And I tend to, I don't know why, because of my upbringing, because I'm a woman, who knows? My wants tend to be unspoken. They tend to be camouflaged. They tend to be very subtle. And I get lost as a writer because I'm not driving from that want and letting everything arrange itself because Mm. of that want. Does that make sense? It's so smart. Um, so that, that's something I think what's that I so smart about today.
2: that, Meg, is like it, it, it makes everything inherently emotional. If we know right away what this character's deepest desire is, anything that's preventing that desire from being fulfilled, what breaks your heart, you know? So that's so smart because you're talking about every line of dialogue has to do three things. If that character's want is made so clear, it's much easier for that dialogue to pull double duty because then the thing that's preventing our character from moving forward is now affronting their desires and their their dreams, right? So that's just yeah. like so smart.
0: And I was thinking about like a, a, a moment in a scene has to do those three things, but for sure dialogue as well without being on context, without being direct has to do all of those things. Um, so yeah, it's um, it was just really helping me decide what comes in, what stays and what goes. Like it just that mm-hmm. want is the path through and it's why maybe a scene that people would have said, well, you can just cut that, you're like, mm. No, because do you see because of the want? And I just haven't made that clear. Um, So I just thought that was a good um, device to go and look at your stuff. Um, But now we need to get to our amazing, spectacular guest, Kemp Powers. Kemp Powers is a playwright, a
1: screenwriter, and co-director, and this year he's one of the most talked about writers in our business with his Oscar-nominated movie One Night in Miami
0: and the animated picture from Pixar, Soul. Uh, And as someone who has adapted a feature from previously existing work and written for one of our industry's most coveted IPs, Star Trek, Kemp is perfect guest uh, to discuss the art of adaptation, as well as just dig into all the writing, artistic, the life, Kemp, the life of the artists. We're so excited to talk to you and have you here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm sure you're busy out there on the uh, the award circuit. We're so lucky we nabbed you. Now the
3: circuit's winding down. I mean, although we could cheat if we want, we could just play the Charlie Kaufman film adaptation and have a few beers, <laughs> a couple hours, and to watch the descent, the the spiral descent into despair that is <laughs> that is adapting work, whether it be one's own or someone else's.
1: <laughs> Did you find oh, that bye. true that it falls apart in the third act when you were um, adapting this project?
3: Oh, it didn't even take the third act. It was <laughs> way, way sooner than that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, what, you know, let's talk about turning One Night in Miami into a feature film. You know, was it your idea or was, did a studio come to you? How how did it happen?
3: Well, yeah, the produ- yeah, producers came to me. Um, it was not my idea. When I wrote it as a play, I really did um, intend it to its entire existence to be as a, a play. I wasn't opposed ever to having it adapted. I just didn't expect myself to be the person who, who adapted it. Um, I, you know Again, when I, when, I, when I first wrote One Night in Miami, I hadn't transitioned into a Hollywood you know screenwriting career. So mm-hmm. I knew it would be some other person who was trained to do that, to do it. And then I, a friend of mine um, who's actually an author <clears throat> and he had one. He famously had one of his books adapted into a, um, a film. And note, and, noted, and the, the, one of the distinct things about it is that literally nothing in the film, other than the title, is actually in his book.
0: Oh my goodness! And
3: he was the one who kind of like sat me down during a dinner and was like, "Look, when you get around to optioning it, you got to be like prepared for like just letting go and being prepared to go into a movie theater one day and not recognize anything that that you that you wrote and and be okay with that." So I figured at some point I might end up optioning it, but I but I it had to be a point where I was okay letting someone do something else with with the play. And and at the time when it first came out, I was not confident that Hollywood wouldn't do something that would make me very unhappy with the source material. So is that
0: why you decided to adapt it yourself?
3: Eventually, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, even it's funny because even when I did decide to adapt it myself and optioned it with the, you know, with the idea of me adapting it, I still expected it to be rewritten. Yeah. So my, my goal was that my script would at least be a proof of concept so that whatever screenwriter came along after me and rewrote me, which is what I expected to happen once a director was attached, that at least that person would maybe kind of stick to the rough model of what I laid out. Because it's always easier to have a template you know, and kind of stick within that template than it is to start from scratch. So that was kind of like my biggest hope was like, okay, maybe the guy or the woman who comes down and rewrites me is gonna at least stick to this model that I'm setting up showing that it can still work largely confined to a, to a single area. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised that when Regina came on as director, as director, she was like, oh, the writer, I want you to be the writer. Like, that's it, like, I'm really happy with with your take on on this.
0: I really. love that that you started out as a realist, which yes. is like, yeah, hey, you know, so- you're going to, we're going to, I'm going to get rewritten. And that's, let's just, let's like, shore up the dike for the rewrite. Let's just give it the base. And then, then you got the dream. You got the director who's like, no, you, I want you as my partner. So amazing. Someone did
1: yeah, such I mean, a good they-
0: job of preparing you for how Hollywood works. <laughs> I was over
3: prepared, you know. Well, part of it is that this is kind of my second go because when I first came to LA in 2004, I was doing a lot of page one rewrite work and nothing mm. got produced. So I learned the hard way just to, like I learned that there were people in our business who have pretty lucrative careers who've never had movies made. Right. And it, that's like only in Hollywood can you buy a big house in Hancock Park with zero, with zero credits <laughs> to your name from the, from the rewrite business. And it's wonderful, <laughs> it's possible, but as a journalist, I equated it to living off of kill fees. Um, right. it, it, it just, it was really kind of soul crushing for me. So I walked away for, for 13 years and went right back to journalism because I, for me, it was like, I need the satisfaction of seeing my work produced right. in, in whatever form. I know it's not always going to happen, but I need to establish some kind of reasonable batting average. And what, in the beginning, I was always writing these spec scripts. People would tell me, you know, you do the water bottle tour. They tell you they love your spec, they've never seen anything like it, and they'll never produce it. And then they, they dust off that script that's been in turnaround God knows how long, you get all this enthusiasm like, I'm going to be the one who gets this actually made. And then a year or two years later, it goes right back in that drawer. And, and so the realism just came from my experiences in the early aughts, the experiences, honestly, that made me kind of walk away from the whole thing.
0: Did you go to playwriting at that point?
3: Not immediately. I mean, I I, I went right back to my normal journalism career and playwriting kind of happened organically. Um, I I joined up with a a very tiny theater company here in LA. I mean, I'm from New York originally, so theater has always been in the background. But it was the fact that um, I was joined up as a writer doing a lot of storytelling and they would do these 24-hour play festivals. Mm. They give you a prompt. I come in at night. They're like, it's going to have you pick a number. It's like three. Okay, you're going to get three actors. Um, There's a feather. There's a gun. There's like, you just have to make sure you do all these things in the course of your 15-minute play. I'd write all night. And then come in the next morning, the actors would show up. They'd rehearse it. And that night, they'd do the play. And I was getting more satisfaction doing those 24-hour plays. Because that's all I really needed was just to see the work executed. Mm -hmm. And that's what really reinvigorated me. So... I, I dove back into theater. I dove into theater largely because it was just satisfying something, and the satisfaction I realized wasn't coming from the pay. It was it was coming from putting it in front of an audience. For me, at least,
0: that's awesome.
1: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your your journey, like the big picture. You know, tell me about yourself, kind of thing, like how you started. And I love what you're talking about. You know, being here in the arts and sort of going back to and wanting to see your work produced, but can you like the, what's your story? What's your background?
3: Um, I mean, I'm from, this is, this is the second career. Um, I was a journalist for 17 years. So the better part of um, almost two decades. Um, and, and it's funny because I first dabbled my, my, my one and only, Class that I took in screenwriting was during a um, sabbatical I took from my journey. It was it was um, if you're a journalist, they have what's called a mid-career fellowships. Um, the Knight Program does several big ones. They do one at Harvard, one at Stanford, and one at the University of Michigan. I actually got a Knight Fellowship at the University of Michigan back when I was 28. Um, at the time, I was a, a writer for Forbes Magazine in the Chicago bureau, so I got to take a sabbatical year off and I moved to Ann Arbor and. My, my field of study was supposed to be global economics, but when I got there, the, the, the night Fellows all said like, oh no, our fields of study are what we do to get these <laughs> fellowships. But as soon as you get here, you do whatever the hell you want. Like learn <laughs> to play banjo, like do, just do what you wanna do. So for me, that meant, I mean, I took a lot of urban planning courses and I took screenwriting um, at, at University of, of Michigan. Um, Jim Bernstein runs a really great screenwriting program there. Um, I actually spoke to his his students fairly um, recently, um, but but I took the and it was one of the only classes that the fellows couldn't audit. He um, for, if you took screenwriting, they were like you have to do the class, you have to write a screenplay with everyone else, <clears throat> and and I had a blast. I mean the the they like to deconstruct scripts from from working writers and the guest working writer that year was um, Alexander Payne, and the script was about Schmidt, which to this day has remained one of my favorite scripts wow. Schmidt, because it was the year that that came out, um, to date when this actually happened. Um, and we kind of deconstructed that, and then we each wrote a script. Um, I was in my, my, my late 20s, so I was by far the oldest in the class. These were undergrads, so most of the students were 19 years old, and I was closer to 29 by this time. So, so I wrote a script and at the end of it, Terry Lawson, my instructor said, you know, you should, you should maybe consider giving this a real shot. And I was like, wow, really? Like, do you think my script was that good? And he was kind of like, I don't know. good," <laughs> Or he was like, or is it just the fact that like everyone else in class wrote a rom-com about a Jewish guy in love with a Gentile girl and you just <laughs> wrote something else? So because the 19-year-old dudes all wrote like rom-coms um, <laughs> and I just wrote like this dark, brooding drama, he was like, maybe it's just because it t- I read something different. But whatever it is, go ahead and give that a try again. So when I wrapped up at Michigan, I actually moved. That's when I first moved out to L.A. I, t- I took that script. I sent it to another um, screenwriting fellowship at USC. And, um, and I got that fellowship. So that's when I first moved out to LA. My 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 magazine transferred me and I wrote another script during that fellowship at, at USC and that's the script that got me represented with my first agent. That's how I ended up doing that like rewrite work because when I when I finished that script, I I already had a literary agent because I'm a former, you know, I'd written and contributed to books and I called okay. my literary agent and asked him like, "Is there anyone you know in LA who will just read my script?" And thankfully my literary agency, as you guys know already, often literary agencies have a relationship with an agency out here because people want existing IP. They want books. Right. So I had a relationship with APA. He convinced an APA agent to, to read my script and that became my agent. So again, it was a very, I had a very blessed path in the beginning <laughs> because the hardest thing to get for any struggling writer is just to get someone to read your stuff right you know at least you know to, to get that person to to read your stuff and and that was pretty easy for me but again that's when the hard shit started mm. you know that's when the all the realities of like oh wow this is not what I thought it was going to be and you know every every pretty much every cliche bad experience happened to me over the next couple of years the whole thing with like this is, this is way before the time of like shows like Atlanta. So my idiosyncratic black characters weren't real. They weren't realistic. No, nothing uh, that I wrote worked. You know, I, I had literally those experiences where it was like, no, this would only be more believable if this guy raped this woman. And you know, <gasps> you're getting told when it comes to black characters, it's really soul destroying stuff. You're just being oh my- told to add these things into every single script that turns it into something that you don't like anymore. So when I say like, it's easy for me to be tongue in cheek and say like nothing got made and that was depressing. But what was even more depressing is that I was kind of glad it wasn't getting made. Right. You know what I mean? Because if that stuff would have been produced, then I'd have the burden of a bunch of garbage with my name on it that I'd be apologizing for now. Right. Right, yeah. Um, but that's why I had to walk away because at a certain point you just go like, this is this is not going to be good. You know what I mean? At a certain point, you know you got to push back. And when you push back, and you're, uh, I think the term they used, we were called baby writers back then. Mm. When you're a baby writer and you push back on a against a producer, you know they they make their displeasure known pretty quickly. And I just I just realized I, I ha- I'd rather push back and not have a career than 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 shovel this mess that that is coming my way. So I, I, had I, loved, Robert I, I love,
0: I love that like, you.
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> 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 I love that you went back though to what you did love and what you did have some passion for and what did allow you to have an authentic voice, yeah. which was your journalism and then into playwriting, and yeah. that by going back to your authentic self. It's brought you here and you're nominated for an Academy Award. Like, I really want emerging writers and even and the writers out there who are working that this is the path. The path is the authentic self uh, to to the, your incredible success this year with two films, two films up nominated. It, it's um, funny
3: because people ask me, like, how did I end up at Pixar? and uh, and And it's funny because, as you already know, Pixar isn't like they don't put one ads out. they kind of just find you and and you never know how they're going to find you. But one of the first questions I asked was like, what of of my stuff have you actually seen? Because um, there weren't many things that I actually let my agent send around. And and I asked Pete and Dana about it and they had actually seen my play one night. They read the play one night in Miami and they'd seen an unproduced TV pilot that I sold. Mm -hmm. I had sold a pilot to FX that didn't get made, but I was still super proud of the pilot. So it wasn't about like having credits on this or that big show. Yeah. It was just the pieces of work that really spoke in my strong authentic voice and and getting a taste of that that those were the things that always seemed to move me forward.
0: That's great. That's I love that. So um one of our listeners John asked um if you could talk about the any any significant differences between working on the different kinds of storytelling so a stage play versus a screenplay, what for you just comes to mind in terms of, as a writer approaching those two things, what are some of the significant differences?
3: God, there's more, there's too many to name. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a completely different form, art form. I mean, if, I, I think it's only out of the necessity from us having streaming and having such a demand for content that people are like, you know what? Let's have these playwrights all start writing scripts. Because honestly, for me at least, it was like going back to square one. Mm -hmm. um having a a successful hit play in a writer's room you have to learn a whole new set of skills like like literally a whole new set of skills I remember the first writer's room that I was in and you know someone went up to the whiteboard and you know drew the lines for the five-act structure and I was like what the fuck is that (laughs) you know like (laughs) no one tells you And and I'm not the only one, like all these playwrights are kind of being hand, I mean, that's why often the staff writer in a writer's room, in many cases, historically has been the assistant, you know, Uh, like a writer's assistant who's at least been in the room. But now you have like in, in the past five years, you've had this wave of playwrights where your stage play is actually a good sample to get you hired in a writer's room, but it's up to the individual writer to then go and learn how to write for that medium. And it is, is a—I mean, it was, a, it was quite a learning curve. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, you have to go back and start from square one. And I'd argue you honestly should go back and start from square one writing for features as well, which is a totally different art form. In a weird way, it's almost square one, 30 minute comedy versus one hour drama. I mean, they're, they're all completely different beasts. And on a basic craft level, you have to learn a completely different set of skills. At no point when I'm writing a play, am I writing towards a commercial break? You know, right. <laughs> which, is, which is just like a basic element of, of writing for a, for a television show. And then how does that, some some streaming shows treat it just like it would be a network TV show. Others don't. Others, it's almost like you're writing one hour cinema. It's It's very... You have to know the craft at each of those different levels, in my opinion. And and that takes kind of like, you got to humble yourself a little bit and be willing to go back and and go to square one. So yeah, having a, a quote unquote hit play, all that got me was a staff writer job where I had to learn the hard lessons that every other staff writer had, but with the negative reality of me being 20 years older than all the other ones. You know, I was older than the showrunner on my first staff writing job, which also gave me the realization that like, boy, you better figure this shit out fast, Kemp, because no one wants to be around like, 20 year olds don't wanna be around an old black guy in, in the writer's room. And I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but ageism is the one thing that knows no race, knows no gender. Like I had a sh- I knew I had a window of like three or four years to level up um, and and learn what I had to learn until I was just gonna be considered too old to be taken seriously and I know there's been studies I'm not delusional when I say that like there, there if they they did like a study at the writers guild and there were like no writers above 45 at the staff writer level like you can't you get to a certain age and you're considered too old to do certain jobs so you know and then then I had writer friends who they had had like big plays and they were kind of given tv shows and it flamed out And for them, and I just think that it wouldn't have flamed out if they'd have known what they were doing. But again, they just, sometimes you're given more than you're able to handle. So I just wanted to be able to handle the responsibility when it came my way.
1: So related to that, one of our uh, listeners, Alexandra asked, how do you know what works in one medium and not in another? And what I'm really curious about is how do you know where you can, you know, you have to learn the rules. And then how do you know where you can break them a little like I started out in playwriting and then I was at Pixar and sort of I I know exactly what you're talking about that like, what is happening here, this is not so but then figuring out how to maximize what you learned as a playwright and then applying that those skills and that craft to other mediums like what is that like for you
3: process has really been organic. It's, it's, a, it's a situational basis. I, I do think that you should at least, if there are rules, you shouldn't know them. And, and, not, and, and honestly, not be in such a rush to break them all the time, because the rules are, I often see some of the standards and rules is there for my benefit. <laughs> There's a reason why when we watch things, we are able to process them the way that, that, that we do, because real life doesn't unfold like anything in cinema or television. You know that we we how people are going to joke forever about say Aaron Sorkin dialogue. They love it, but they also know that like human beings don't speak that way. You know, people. Yeah. None of us are that smart all the time. If we can just trade <laughs> quip, it's um. It, there was a film that I watched once um, years ago. It was, it was called Juno, where like all these young kids were so witty and quippy, and and it was like it's, I think it won an Oscar. Great script, but it's like this is this isn't real life, you know what I mean? And it's not about hewing to real life. I mean, those rules, um, having a structure, you know, having, having conflict between care, all these things are set up to actually allow your audience to enjoy and understand it. So I, I, I think people, when they hear rules, they see rules as a negative thing. But I actually see rules as in many cases, guard, guardrails or training wheels you know, kind of help us not drive off a cliff, which is, you know, imagine if, oh, you know what, fuck it. I'll write a 90 page first act. Technically that's breaking a rule, but who the hell wants to stay in the first act for 90 pages? You know, (laughs) like, you see how absurd that sounds? And that's what I think of. Like, so I don't see rules as like, oh man, the rules, the rules don't let me have any fun. I see the rules as like, oh God, I've got a little bit of guidance. So let me just kind of like paint within these lines for a while. And maybe sometimes I'll do something that's a little bit different. Maybe we'll go outside of those lines. I mean, soul is a great example. You know, Pixar, as you know, the brain trust process, you could call that a bunch of rules. You could go outside those rules. You just have to be able to explain yourself, you know, and validate it, like validate it to a room full of really smart people who've tried lots of different ways to do it. And if you can validate it, of course you can break some of those rules,
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. you you know,
3: and and of course you can, but, but Mm -hmm. people, I think they hear rules and they think it's bad. And I see rules more as guardrails and, and, and helping me, a tool to kind of help me. Totally
0: agree. I love that. 100% agree. So um, Jason Reed asked, and I also am curious when you're translating your play to the screen, um, you know what was what were the, what was the challenge in that? You know, I, I understand plays are are dialogue driven, a film is visually driven. You know, plays tend to be uh, in my understanding, you two playwrights can tell me if I'm wrong, uh telling you the story through dialogue whereas in film it's really about behavior and so how, what was that like for you and, and and how did you find that balance?
3: Yeah, it was it was hard. Um one thing that helped was that there was lots of stuff in cinema that achieved the type of stuff that I wanted to achieve. The bad thing is most of it was before 1960. (laughs) It was like 12 Angry Men. There is actually a great history of incredibly talky, powerful, dramatic works in confined spaces because back in the day, you often only had a couple of rooms in which to tell your story anyway. So um it's a part of cinema history that i think has and there's a history in cinema where there was a period of time when plays were often the source material for a lot of films before it became books and novels and other things and and i just kind of look back to a lot of those pieces of work um and and, and particularly when the source material was a play or, or it was or, or something like that i mean i realized that I, I wanted to have the film and the play be the same thematically but I had to be willing to really change a lot of the story, which is what I did. The story changes quite a bit. And the very thing that made the play special, which is this idea that you are getting to be a fly on the wall for a private conversation. I mean, that's a big part of it. I wanted to recreate that. The way the play is structured, though, the play is real time. The play begins when the four men walk into the room, and it ends 85 minutes later when they leave the room. So the differences between the play and the film are pretty drastic. I, I mean, I don't think I get to a single even paraphrase word from the play in the movie until about 45 minutes in, you know, um, so, so I had to really, because I was also trying to restructure it so that it made sense from a cinematic standpoint. I mean, you, these guys are coming into the room. I wanted to show the wound, set up the wound that each of the men carried with them in. You know, I mean, again, there's conflict, there's all these things that you don't have to do in theater that I think you have to do with a film to set it up and make it more understandable. So, uh, you know, part of it is the, the rules thing where it's like, uh, I, I, yeah, technically I could probably get away with doing that, but I want people to actually understand this and, and, and understand the stakes for each of these men. And in some of these cases, the stakes are all up here. You know, there, there's psychological stakes. The person that it's the most physically dangerous for uh, is Malcolm. You know, he is the person who's in physical danger and Cassius, you know, although Cassius doesn't seem to care about it. They're, you know, they're the ones with the physical stakes for Jim and Sam. It's very psychological. Um, So, so, you know, and, and I wasn't really, um, I really credit journalism with making me not precious about my own words. So for me, um, I treat, I treat my play like I would any other piece of source material. And with a piece of source material, it's not about recreating everything in that book, in that play, in that bio. It's finding something in that that excites you. So I actually kind of looked at my own play and said, what excites me the most about this? That's what I want to make a film out of. Not, I mean, it's not about recreating the, the entire play. No, I wanna choose the thing that's most exciting about it. And that's what I wanna make a film of. That's
0: awesome. That's a really such great advice to emerging writers, to any writer. It's great advice to, for me to be reminded of, <laughs> honestly, as I work off of source material too, in terms of you do have to let it go and let it be a new thing, just to be, let it be in its own new thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I can't say specifically what it is, but I'm the project I'm currently writing is an, it's based on a biography of a famous American and it won the Pulitzer. And it's one of those extensive biographies. And, and it's so interesting, like I think in getting the job, they just gave me the book and asked for my take. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to thinking like, oh, how am I gonna do this cradle to the grave for this, this historical figure? I locked in on like one part of this person's life. I was like, I wanna do a film about this five year window because the transformation this person goes through during this point in their lives speaks to me speaks to everything they're going to do over the next 20 years and everything that happened before and 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 they got it so that that's actually the version of the now we'll see if it works of course but but I'm really excited about pulling that out of this you know really extensive book i think that's I think
1: really that's important a- too
3: just Go ahead, Brian. I, it's
1: such a great way to look at it. What excites me about anything, right? Yeah. That you want to dig into that. I think that's such a great, great way to find your take on anything, your mm-hmm. own projects or IP. So thank you for that.
3: Yeah, because we're the audience, right? I mean, I'm assuming anyone who wants to do this for like, like anyone who doesn't love cinema should not be writing movies. And just like, you know what I mean? Like anyone who doesn't love theater should not never be writing a play. So I always see us as the actual audience. So like, <clears throat> what is it that makes us excited that feels a little bit like, oh man, I would love to. So if I'm genuinely kind of bouncing up and down the same way we do when, when that, that issue of whatever magazine comes out, like here's the next 30 films coming out in the next six months and you go, oh my God, so-and-so's doing a this about that, woo! Like that's, that's what you wanna do, right? <laughs> you wanna be the person who's like, oh shit. Kemp's doing it this about this dude during this. Oh, like that's always looking for the moment. <laughs>
1: we'll have to figure out how to write that down in a quote so that we can all looking for the. Yeah. Woo. <laughs>
3: but you know what I mean, right? When you
1: yes, see
3: I see do, off, you kind of freak out a little bit, and you go like, "Oh man, that's going to be so," because you know what that could potentially mean, um, and 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 that really excites you.
1: Yeah, I think that I, I just have, you know, uh, there's a lot of writers who, are work, who get like open writing assignments. You're sort of in that middle place and you have generals, you get open writing assignments. And it's so hard to say no to things when they come your way. But mm-hmm. if you don't find that, ah! like, it's not for you, right? I and agree. that's so hard. And I think it's so, so important to keep that in mind. Like, if you don't get excited about even just a teeny piece of it that you can pull out and dig into... You, you have to find a way to pass
3: i agree and and that's the you know it's a uh, i've told i've I've given that same advice to other people, and it's amazing how they they just don't do it because and i and it's a combination of look, I, everyone has different managers and agents, and you know they they get a percentage of what we earn and let's just talk brass tax. The reality is those open assignments often. It's real money, it's guaranteed money, and it's a hell of a lot more than the projects that we develop on our own, our our passion projects. So, uh, you know, I I don't want to be cavalier. I understand that people have mortgages and, you know, and college educations to pay for, but you're absolutely right, though. I I think that at the very least, you need to block out some of your time for your pie-in-the-sky passion projects. You know, that thing where it's like, Oh, man. And and I've I've got a couple myself where it's just like there's a couple of articles that, you know, like an an actor I know got the rights to this article. And in our spare time, we're kind of like noodling around trying to figure it out. We're not on anyone's timetable. You know, we haven't tried to sell it to anyone yet. But it's like you you have to you have to keep time for those things because you can't forget what is it that got you here? (laughs) You know, and it's and then, and it's just like when you, at a certain point, you, you can easily when you get good at doing this, end up in this situation where you're making high price widgets, you you know, mm-hmm. and that, that can be your life, too. And it's the while the money is good, you, you want to do awesome stuff and, and stuff that, that, you know, and you never know what little thing you do turns into a big thing, you know, people yeah, you never know. One Night in Miami was an indie. I remember the the hardest challenges of that script were actually in production when we found out there were scenes that we couldn't afford to shoot, Mm -hmm. you know? And there were, because it was totally indie. We, We were bought by Amazon, but it was like, hey, Kemp, this scene, we just, like, we can't afford the car. We can't afford this. So is there any way to have this happen in these other scenes? And I'm like, I'll make it work. I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to get this point in, the, in across in this scene or in that scene. But those were the hard parts. And that was just, we just didn't have the money. So that film that we didn't even know if anyone would ever see it to end up being seen by like, to be honest, it feels like as many people saw One Night in Miami as Saw Soul. Because Amazon is everywhere and people like all over the world saw it. You never know where your little passion project idea, how hmm. much it can blossom on its own. It's really, and you'll never love have the satisfaction of it if you don't try. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. I love it. I love it. Now, Jeff, you had a question.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, it actually kind of relates to passion projects. Um, it's kind of a two-parter. The first thing I want to acknowledge is that you mentioned the, the movie One Night in Miami. The stakes are really about what's happening in the characters' belief systems and their passions and their wants. Mm-hmm. And their their philosophies around the power that they're holding. And I think what's so interesting is it's really a movie about ideas. Like I feel like the movie and the play are really driven by ideas almost more than they're driven by story. I hope I'm articulating that well. But Mm -hmm. the thing that's so interesting about that is one, I'd love to hear you speak on that and whether or not you agree with me. And two, I think it provides a lot of hope to young filmmakers who wanna write their own one location idea-driven drama um, that they could maybe shoot themselves. And so I'd love to hear you speak on that. Like, how do you write a compelling story that's kind of driven around provocative conversation? And how would you encourage filmmakers who maybe want to create their own material for not much money to do the same thing?
3: Right. Well, I mean, I would not I would not look at a single location as a gimmick. That's that's one thing, because, uh, you know, there's a. I've seen like the the cheap single location thing being used as a gimmick and that doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be entertaining. It's, it's gonna, and, but, but I think you're right in that the, I am, uh, there's, it's just a certain kind of film that I've always liked. I mean, I mentioned 12 Angry Men. Um, another film I'll mention is The Big Chill. You know, it's a, it's a group of friends stuck in a house with each other over a weekend, just talking about friendship. You know, it does have a central story, but I guess you could call that a, a film of, uh, of ideas. I, I just love. I love stories that get to our humanity and 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 I've found, again, from my first go around in Hollywood, I found that there were few, if any, opportunities to tell those types of stories, which I'd seen with black characters, you know, mm-hmm. and this go around, I feel incredibly lucky in that I got to tell do it twice in the same year. Um, because yes, while Soul isn't a black film, it's definitely through the prism of a black man's experiences. And, and, and a story like that, I don't think would have been possible to tell even five years ago. Um, we, we have to like acknowledge that there's a, there's a desire when it comes to black characters for there to be, for us to be up here. You know what I mean? Like being incredibly expressive Stakes are only by action. Stakes can only be someone's about to kick the door down. Someone's about to, to unload a bullet into you or something. Like, it, it, there's, you know, there's never internal emotional stakes. There. I mean, at least, again, in, the experience, in my experience is watching Black characters in, in films. So I, I, I really do believe that there's, a, there's still a story in the film. You know, Malcolm is, is at the end of his rope you know, he's kind of like putting all his eggs in this basket, you know, to convince this friend of his to go along with him. And if he does, the the thesis is that like, if he can do that, then he can save his own life. We all know based on reality that they'd have a split and Malcolm ends up dead. Um, but the, the point of the film is that he still wins anyway, because he passes, he passes the torch of responsibility. You know, the play action, Plays much more like a tragedy because the play ends on a very different moment with Malcolm. And one of the challenges of this was we wanted to end on, we wanted to have this be a film about hope and end on a note of hope. And it's really challenging to do that when Malcolm inspires Sam in the film to make the song, but then we know Sam gets killed too. (laughs) In fact, Sam gets killed first before the song comes out. So how do you end on that note of hope when it's like the guys who are inspiring each other are all getting knocked off. And it's just the, you know, I focused on the, the youth of it all and the, and the, and the song itself, you know, the words to the song and really passing the torch onto the audience members, you know, so that yeah. so we could still end on this note of hope, even in this story that we know is so filled with death and not focus on any of the death. You know, not show any of these guys actually get, because that's an option. You know, there's a version where you tell the story and you have the montage and you see Malcolm at the podium getting shot, you know, and the, another part of the montage is Sam, you know, at the motel room and the police running out and him, you know, be, you know, his body splayed out in a hotel room. That's an exciting montage that you can easily like, oh, wow. I and instead, what is the montage? It's Jim Brown doing a press conference saying, I quit the NFL. You know, like we I, we, I chose very, very different things for that montage that don't focus on on some of the sexier things because ultimately it's about the humanity. I know that's a rambling answer that I don't no, know. No, it's
0: an amazing answer. I was literally taking notes. I'm not yeah. even kidding. It's <laughs> yeah. an amazing answer. I'm it sitting here, limited so smart. Like- can you just keep talking forever? And
1: I'll just listen. <laughs> like this is such so, a so masterclass. Yes. Yeah. So
0: such, such smart, smart writing and approach and storytelling. Um, I do want to make sure we get to some of our other questions because, um, you know, our, we had so many questions come in for you, Camp. You just have so many fans. Um, This is from Peter and he says, I really loved both soul and one night in Miami as a screenwriter of color it's so important to get these authentic stories on the big screen, it seems Hollywood is beginning to really open up to make more stories from people of color, I hope so. What advice do you have for a screenwriters of color to break in and how to deal with racism in the industry? And I know that's a very large question. Um, but let's just hear kind of your first thoughts about that.
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It, it's funny because a lot of people ask me about when, when, one night in Miami, who did I think was right, Malcolm or Sam? And my answer is, um, not you're not used both of them, and neither of them it's situational. And the reality of it is that this argument that they're having, um, is a debate that goes on in my psyche like on a daily basis. It's mm-hmm. it's it's me talking to myself when I'm making decisions about how much am I going to be willing to compromise in this situation? Which hills am I going to be willing to die on? And and this isn't just me as a black man, it's something that, and if you're Asian, if you're a woman, there's always going to be situations. Where, you know, you could take a stand on this situation, but we cannot die on every hill. <laughs> right. And, you, and it's up to you to decide what hills um, you were willing to die on. I, I'm a firm believer that in order to get where we're going as a community, it takes, sometimes we got to be like Sam Cooke about it. We got to work within the system and bring about change. It might be a little bit more subtle, but over the long term is going to have a bigger impact then other times we have to burn the shit down. You know, it's so egregious that we gotta be like Malcolm X about it and just be like, fuck this place, fuck all of you, I'm out the door, bye, wow. Like, but it really, and I've, and I've done both. You know, I, I, I'm only willing to admit that I've been that guy who's done both of those things, but it's about, um, you know, which hills are you willing to die? On? Cause you can't die on every hill. You know, okay. at the end of the day, I am an artist and I wanna be free to be an artist. I don't want to have to always just be focusing on like the race of and and racial issues with everything that I'm working on. I want to have the freedom to tell stories like the stories that I love um, so much. And I I think a lot about Jackie Robinson because I didn't realize I was the first black co-director at Pixar. I didn't realize I was the first credited screenplay writer. at black. I didn't know any of that shit you know, until someone told me, and I thought about it because, you know, being first sucks for any number of reasons, but one of the things about Jackie Robinson that I always thought was fascinating was that Jackie Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues, you know, when he was called up to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, Satchel Paige, any number of other players were better than Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the right player, and what I mean by the right player is he was going to be capable of putting up with a certain amount of bullshit Mm -hmm. and not walking away. Because Mm -hmm. when you're the first, you often have to swallow some things, you Mm -hmm. know Um, you, you gotta like swallow a few things so that you can move the needle forward, not just for yourself, but for the people who come after you, you have to, you have to um, be make, be a good example, Mm -hmm. be a good example so that, you're not you and your entire group is not seen as problematic so that people want to bring more people who look like you in after you're you're gone and and that was really what jackie robinson was he was branch ricky knew that when he was called the n-word he wasn't going to wrap a baseball bat around every racist head in in the stadium though he would have been within his rights to do so how would that have moved you see what i'm saying how would it and that's really what it's about is that, you know, there even people being well-meaning will often do things that are offensive, but, you know, you gotta, you, there are people out there who wish me harm. They're my enemies. The people, my coworkers are not my enemies. <laughs> okay. These are well-meaning creatives who I step in it sometimes when it comes to other groups, you know, the same, the person who's being bullied on Monday is bullying someone else on Tuesday. You know, someone's saying something that I think is racist towards me. And then the next day I'm doing something misogynistic towards someone else who's then doing something homophobic towards someone else. We've all got blind spots and we have to allow people to be imperfect. And I think that's a firm belief of mine being a journalist, which means that I had to be in news organizations for two decades where I was often one of the only black faces. But it was more important to me that I get more Black people into these organizations and see more Black representation than it was for me to be happy about everything that everyone around me was doing all the time. And I think that element of my personality has contributed to my success. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but I'm, I am saying that like, I don't think it's necessary to make such a big deal about everything because Hollywood in its base level is fucking absurd. Like Hollywood is, Hollywood is racist. It's sexist. It's ageist. Everyone has their head up their ass. Everything about Hollywood. It's, it's, it lures literally the most fucked up people in the world in pursuit of instant fame and fortune. So like, (laughs) who? I could find something to be mad about like all the time. But instead, I, again, I'm, I'm on a bit of a mission where I'm like trying to move the dial forward. Again, you know your own limits. You know what you can and can't put up with. Um, a lot of people who know me say that like, if, if I would have had more patience with certain things, I could have had success 10, 15 years ago. I was willing to not have that success because I had my limits. There are mm-hmm. things I wouldn't write. There's things that I wouldn't do. Only you know what's, what's gonna work for you. Um, but you also have to be willing to like, Stand up for those things, knowing that when it's not you, there's a thousand people who will happily do it. You know, like that's the thing. None of us are not If the, the worst mistake you can ever make in this business is feeling like you are not replaceable mm. or that you're you're the key without you. It won't work or it won't succeed. That is the most laughable attitude anyone can have any any one of us doing it. This at the even at the high level, it's still highly competitive. Yes. You know, it, it stays highly competitive. You mean to tell me you think there's really like only what? How many people do you think can technically write a Star Wars movie? You see what I mean? Like easily (laughs) 90% of the writer's guild could write one of those films. (laughs) So it's always gonna be a competitive where when you're gone, be comfortable with the fact that no one's gonna miss you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Keep> <laughs> we'll on, miss
0: you, Kemp. You can't go. I'm sorry.
3: No, I'm no, sorry, We
0: will miss you. Don't go <laughs> anywhere. Kemp. I
3: told you, like I don't even have a long shelf life. I told, I've told my agents, everyone. I'm like, I'm probably got another 10 years tops of of doing this shit in me. Like, I, I honestly, um, I turned 48 this year. I can't see myself at 60 in the rat race anymore. I just can't. I, I wouldn't. I'd rather. I'd rather have a coffee shop or something. I just no, you're ra-
0: going to be a storyteller. You're going to be doing your plays. Or something. I'm sorry. I'm me, sorry, me, but me, you are. Me, you're too important. You're too talented. I'm sorry. I say, yeah, I
3: will be doing this. You will be you seeing. Can, it
0: that's seeing. fine. We're going to still get you though. We have one more question. I really want to get it in though before we ha- we lose you. So, Lauren, you want to read this last question? Yes. Yeah, so,
1: this comes from Wendy, and
0: she says, "As an Asian American woman, I'm struggling with
1: finding this voice, and I feel like my stories automatically default to white." Mm. And I-, I think this is a, a really good question, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this
3: that's interesting she finds her so even when she's writing her story it's yes. a fault to white
0: yeah and i think like yeah my interpretation of that is she's so inundated with uh storytelling white. Ta- white storytelling wow. or about white people that is she unconsciously not, at, you know, and sometimes, and this goes for any writer of any race, of any, that you sometimes, you know, stay back from the, what we call the lava, the more vulnerable stuff, the fire, and maybe there's um identity in there. Um, how, how do you, how do you work through that? How do you make sure you're being authentic to your, to your voice?
3: See, that's interesting. I, I guess I've been kind of lucky in that Black stories have always been a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's even... It's interesting. Like, even when we talk about cinema, um, what what I guess would have been called black exploitation films like I saw all like those were just movies to me. And then there was like a whole other level of like independent films with blacks. I was talking to someone about this the other day, Um, like required viewing for me when I was a little kid were films like Cornbread Earl and Me, which dealt with police brutality or the education Mm. of Sonny Carson. It wasn't until I became an adult that I realized no white person had seen these movies. You know, if you watch Cornbread Earl and me today, you would think that it was written in response to like George Floyd. And it's the, it's the cinema debut of Lawrence Fishburne. It's Lawrence Fishburne 12 years old. And it's about a star athlete who is running in the rain, like racing home from the store and the police mistake him for a, um, a suspect who's robbed a store and they shoot and kill him. They shoot the athlete and the little kid sees it. And the whole film, it turns into a courtroom drama where the police are intimidating him and his mom to try to say that the athlete robbed the store when he didn't. But the big reveal at the end of the film is the police officer when he's on the stand saying, you know what, maybe we made a mistake. Like it's not even about the cops getting in trouble. It's just about- cops admitting that maybe they killed the wrong guy this film was from 1977 okay Wow. (laughs) so from where i'm sitting these stories have been a part of my cinema my perspective i've actually seen a lot of it from when i was a little little kid it's just none of it's been mainstream but i grew up in black neighborhoods You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to sit me in front of a TV and be like, eyes on the prize. Watch that shit. Like, you know, these, all that stuff was kind of required viewing. So that's why I kind of like was taken aback because I've always, um, you know, had that authentic Black perspective and and felt like, and I guess that's what it is. I always felt it was authentic and legitimate, you know, and and that's really, really what it is. Like when you, and, and especially in environments where you're the minority it's not uncommon for everyone to try to delegitimize that perspective like I remember the first time that I um told a classmate they're like oh college where are you thinking of going I'm like oh I'm thinking of going to this school Howard and they were like Howard that's not a real school I never heard of that it's not a real school now you know in my community Howard is like Harvard you know what I mean in fact in terms of like what you get out of going there in terms of connections and career wise, I'd say it, it benefits black kids as much as it benefits white kids going to Harvard. But you see like the, the natural reaction to the population at large is to belittle your shit. Mm-hmm. But again, because I grew up in an environment where it was like I knew they were full of shit, you know, so it was easy <laughs> for me to go like, man, fuck you. You know, like whatever, <laughs> like but but a but it gets into your psyche. I mean, the, the, yeah. if you're a super smart kid, and you happen to be black, and you get into Harvard, and then they did an episode of Blackish about it for Christ's sake, where he gets into Stanford and Howard, and everyone goes like, well, of course you got to go to Stanford because you're too smart, you know, and that's. That's how that's our society man they always devalue and belittle black shit always and and, and I don't really have a, a definitive answer for like you you got to just let that that roll off of you because you know you know your culture and perspective has value you have to just know that that that, that your culture and your perspective has value not to say it's better or less than but of course it has value.
0: I wonder too, if Wendy's question goes back to something you said earlier, which is that you did have a point in your career where you were being asked to rewrite things and everybody was writing these rom-coms and that you realized this is not authentic to me. Yeah. Um, You know, you're really choosing authentic stories to you, the stories you want to tell. And I could see, you know, that just makes sense to me. I think that does dovetail into what her question is in terms of finding voice. Right? If you're starting from a place of authenticity, whether you, like you talked about, whether it's something you think can quote unquote, sell or not, who the hell knows, right? that passion project is developing that voice, you know, whether that voice be I bet identity in terms of your race, your sex, maybe it's just who you are. Your voice is developed in those passion projects. And that's why they're so important. Um, And, and it's such a wonderful, beautiful reminder to us today. Um, Everything you've talked about, again, I was taking notes (laughs) and uh, I just, I'm, I'm so, so honored that in this incredibly busy time, as you are, feted and celebrated for these two amazing films that you came here to talk to us just thank you so much such an honor
3: thank you
0: and uh good luck fingers crossed yes we'll be watching toes
3: yeah whatever i'm i'm already (laughs) I'm, i'm good all i know i was like they're not getting that Golden Globe trophy back up there. So whatever. There
0: I'll, it I'll is. <laughs> oh, awesome. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I remember when, I, when we lost the Academy Award, the first thing I thought was, oh, yeah, I'm coming back here.
3: I'm going to yeah, be I, back I, here. That's right? what it is. is like, I'm kind of like, oh, this was really cool and I'm excited and I'm honored. But now I'm already kind of like, all right, now I got to like come back and be in that. I want to come back as a front runner. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> where where it's like <laughs> your, yours is the piece to beat.
0: I don't know that that isn't true to not, but I'm okay. We won't embarrass you. Do you you. do you feel like there's this extra pressure,
1: right? Like leveling up, right? Like, okay, you got nominated for an Oscar. Now, next, now, what are you going to do next? Do you feel
3: that? Is that? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, the good thing that again, I I'm really picky about my stuff anyway. So, like, I'm I'm as excited about what I'm working on now as I was about those projects when I was working on them, which is really a, a, a good sign. And, and I'm at first I was kind of lamenting that I committed to stuff so soon, but now I'm kind of glad I had something I committed to that I've been able to be working on the whole time this, this circus has been happening. You know, I've, I've been kind of in the cave the whole time and, and just working on something, so. Um, yeah, yeah, it's. But uh, well,
0: we're yeah, we're very lucky that you are in your cave yes. working on something because we will all benefit from it as it as we get mm. to view it and experience your story. So, thank Thanks. you so much. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, cool. thank
3: Thanks you for having me, guys.
1: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group, and you can email us at the at gmail And please drop us a review on
0: Apple Podcasts.
1: Remember you are not alone and keep writing
2: thanks for tuning in to the screenwriting life we love our community and we want to get to know you even better join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show you can also suggest topics by emailing us there also we'd love for you to drop us a review on apple podcasts even if we don't read your review on air trust me we have read it and not only does it mean the world to us but it helps other people find the show we've always been driven by mission and mentorship and reviewing our show helps expand that mission And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.